This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How are you? I'm very good. What happens tomorrow, Mawera? Oh, I think if you're not busy, there's this thing you can come to. It is my defence for my doctorate thesis. So, you know, just that little thing. (laughs) How exciting. It is exciting, eh? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so exciting. You'll be awesome. Am I ready? Born ready. <laughs> so what have we been doing for the past three years, if you were already ready? Uh, I'm trying to prove it to other people that I'm ready, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it worked, eh, Sam? I'm sure it will be fun. It will be. And who are we introducing today? Speaking of fun, it is my great pleasure to introduce a very new friend in my life who I just met at a party on the weekend and convinced him that this was a very good idea, gentleman farmer and gin maker, Dean Smith. Welcome, Dean. It is an absolute privilege to have you here with us today. Well, that's a big intro. Thank you very much. Kia ora. to both of you. Kia ora, Dean. Where are you, Dean? I'm in Wainui, Bay of Plenty, which is uh, on the Ohiwa Harbour. So about 10 minutes um, from Ohope, heading toward Opotiki. And Mawera described you as a gentleman farmer and gin maker. Do you live on the farm? I could say, do you live, live in a gin bottle, but do you live in the farm? <laughs> yes, I live on, the, live on the farm. It's a small farm, just uh, 10 acres, 4 hectares. Um, but yes, and we have a barn on the farm. And that barn um, was when we bought the the house a year ago and the farm a year ago had had a barn that was being used for barn things but we've now converted that into a gin barn so we make gin in that barn yeah nothing like keeping animals and hay and something get rid of that let's have gin instead yes they'd have to build some of those uh those portable sheds that they sell at mitre 10 and bunnings that look easy to build and turn out to be notoriously difficult um, but we did get some help to do that, actually. So, um, and the, the the kind lady who helped us, Susie, said she would never do it again. <laughs> so, were you on the farm during the first lockdown last year? No, no. So, um, so I'm I came back to New Zealand in September last year. So, the first uh, lockdown, I was in um, the US, and uh, we had I've been living in New York for twelve years. Uh, moved there in 2008 and actually lived in New Zealand for 32 years. And so I had been uh, living around the world in different places. Um, 
Australia, US, the UK, Canada, and then um, had already made our decision uh, to leave the US and we were planning on leaving um, sometime last year, but then COVID happened. So we had an apartment in New York and we had a fortunate also to have a lake house in Pennsylvania. And so we had been traveling in India And um, as the lockdowns were happening around the world, COVID was literally chasing us. We were in the the, the um, Taj Mahal one day, and the next day it was closed. So it was basically as we moved, um, India was shutting down behind us. Got back to the US, landed at Newark, picked up our car, picked up our dog, and drove out to um, our lake house, and that's where we stayed for the next six months. Um, just really um, locking it down there. And um, and they, so that was through March and April. Um, we just they put um, on the lake. That sounds like a nice place to spend the first bit of lockdown in a lake house. Uh, yeah, it was it was a nice um, place. It was a really stressful, you know, situation. We're an hour and a half from New York, and it was the epicenter of the pandemic at the time. Um, and we were really obviously concerned for our friends who were still in the city. And um, it was, um, there was, you know, little guidance coming from, from the government. So you were really making your own choices um, about how you protected yourself. So we were just very fortunate that we had a place where we could be not in our apartments and not in a, a big city, but with a bit of space, um, which um, was certainly nicer than being in the apartment in New York, that's for sure. We were aware of the shall we call it chaos that seemed to be going on in the states at the time were you aware of the what was happening here uh yeah yeah we were we, i was keeping a, a bit of a tight eye in, uh, on what was going on all around the world actually because i think i mentioned earlier we had um we'd already decided by this stage that we were that our time in the us was was done and we were actually intending to move to italy and of course you know, Italy was the beginning, you know, was the worst place. <laughs> then we thought we'd go then we thought we'd go to Spain. Well that got no better. And so it kind of came down to two choices for us, which was either Australia or New Zealand. And um and so we were keeping a very close eye on what was happening in New Zealand. And and at the time, you know, the lockdown was very um severe in New Zealand, I guess, compared to other places, but it seemed to be working. And it was pretty apparent, um, I would say, from where we sat, that that was a better um, way to, to to manage the pandemic. It was it probably had the opportunity to be able to manage it that way. I think the um, you know the cat was certainly out of the bag in the US by that stage. But um, yeah, we and and in the end, we decided based on you know largely based on that and on on my my family and and what and where to go next, and we. Um, that was my husband and I, we decided that New Zealand would be the right place for us. So that's what brought us back. Um, so it was uh, really driven by, um, we, as I say, we're definitely leaving the US, but the decision to move back to New Zealand was driven by the, the state of the pandemic and the state of how New Zealand um, was managing it. And, you know, we really did, you know, we, we, we knew three or four people who lost their parents. Um, we have a friend who suffers from long COVID now, 18 months after the event, um, we have, um, you know, it is, it's real, you know, it was real. Um, and 
um, to be able to come to a country where um, hadn't had that impact was was really great. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Madonna. Vogue, why this one? Oh, so I did just mention my husband. So this was the song <laughs> that we uh, that we met to on a on a on a um, dance floor in a nightclub called Bang Busby's in London in 1990. This was this was what we were doing back then. We all had long hair and we we're all voguing.
September. What yeah. are the challenges? Yeah. Were there particular challenges in, in traveling at that time? Yeah, so the biggest challenges for us was first of all to try and sell both of our properties. So to get out of our apartment in New York and get out of our um, our lake house, because at that point we decided that you know that was the best thing would be to 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 um, to leave and to sell our assets there. Um, so that was an interesting um, experience during a lockdown. Of course, everything as it probably was a bit like here was in reverse. The property that we would expect, we always thought we'd make money out of the New York apartment. No one wanted to buy a New York <laughs> apartment in August last year. And the lake house, which we always only ever had as a lifestyle option, suddenly became the most um, sought after piece of property in that part of Pennsylvania. So it was topsy turvy. That was crazy. And um, and then we had to, um, my husband Stuart's uh, English by birth, but he's an Australian citizen as well. So our assumption, of course, was that we'd both just be able to enter New Zealand, um, but that wasn't the case anymore. He had to get a visa, um, a, a special visa to enter. Um, so we had to go through that process, um, which was not uh, overly onerous to be fair, but it was just different, you know, we didn't expect that. And uh, we came in in September, which was prior to the booking system for MIQ. So when we came in, we could just land, we just landed at the airport. Um, getting flights was difficult. I did have flights booked on points, uh, which then got canceled and was never able to get those points, that <laughs> flight back <laughs> on points. So we had to come back on, you know, on a real, use real money to buy the tickets. And, um, and we then went into MIQ in, in Auckland, um, which, um, which to me was a pretty um, interesting, very interesting experience. Um, well managed, well run, no complaints around the the process and the operation. The mental impact it had on on me uh, just being two weeks in isolation like that surprised me. It was more stressful than I had anticipated. Did you get in a big hotel room or a little a little one? Yeah. Tripping over so, each so other for two weeks. Thing, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be rude, but the main thing I cared about, because you didn't know until you actually literally were at the airport about to get on the bus, that was when you told which hotel you, you were going to. And as long as I didn't hear Ibis or Sudua, I was like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'll go anywhere else. And I thought they said Crown Plaza, and I thought, well, Crown Plaza is better than the Ibis. And then it turned out that I think they said the Stanford Plaza, which was, you know, that fancy one down the bottom of Albert Street in Auckland. However, it was built. At, I mean, I remember when that hotel opened, so it's not 
the newest hotel, so the rooms aren't huge, and the windows didn't open, um, so the bathroom became, you know, the escape area. So, um, and then we we would sit on the wind. We looked out onto the exercise yard. Right? It makes it sound a bit like a prison, and would watch people walk around in circles all day. And um, and then when we would walk around, we would see some rooms with multiple kids in them and stuff. And just thinking that that would have been kind of hard going. But um, uh, you know, we we're very grateful to get back to New Zealand. We we're very grateful to have the uh, the opportunity to come home. And uh, so, so I'm not. I'm certainly not complaining. It was just more interesting than that. I just thought, you know, two weeks you just fly by. But um, for me, the 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 time just dragged. Um, after the first few days, you know, once you got over the the, you know, the stress and of the journey and so on, you know, because we we wore the shields and the masks and you know everything that you could possibly put on to protect yourself getting home, and uh, that. But then it just got a bit mentally dragging. But I'll say the food was excellent. And if only there was some air to breathe, I don't think I could cope with the closed windows. Yeah, no. So we had forty-five minutes. Well, the trip you could go out any time. At that, that at that time, I don't know if things had changed. So there was an area that was the old, you know, lobby, parking lobby that you could go to at any time. Um, but then you had your forty-five minutes of organised exercise a day. Um, there wasn't really much point going out though and standing in the parking lot but um the 45 minutes you definitely look forward to and um, i got a sneeze i got a sniffle so of course i reported i had a sniffle at which point Ooh, that was a could, not leave, <laughs> could not leave the room so we had to wait two more days i think till our test came back before i could actually leave the room but um yeah it was it that not being able to open the window was a little tough so and do they insist on like taking you back to the airport or you're out on the street out oh, no, of the hotel so that no you're basically out on the street and um so i made the decision to book the hotel right next door so, <laughs> so i booked a room at the key key west i think which is because we just thought look we've got all of our bags we and and one thing that i did do when i was in in there was buy a car so I had spent the time shopping around for a car and bought it and was ready to pick it up. And it was, so I just thought the easiest thing will be for us to wheel our bags out one door and into the door of the hotel next door, then <laughs> figure out how to get an Uber and get across to the North shore and pick up the car and do all that sort of stuff. So it's quite, um, it's quite ironic that after two weeks of not being happy there, I moved literally to the next door and could pr almost see the room from, from the room in the hotel that I moved to. But did you spend, at least half an hour going in the door, out the door, in the door, out the door. I can do whatever I like. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of liberating, that's for sure. Um, I have in my life spent one night in jail in San Francisco a very long time ago, and um, this this felt pretty liberating, similar to that. And had you already got the farm that you were moving to? No, no. So we had, um, so our plan at the time was let's buy something, um, something small. We knew we, we, we didn't want to live in Auckland. We didn't want to live in a city. We just lived 12 years in New York. We were like, we don't, we don't need another city. Um, you know, we've had New York for 12 years. Let's do something more rural. Um, and one of the things with the lake house was that we really did appreciate that space that that had. And um, Stuart was growing, um, vegetables on. We had our own pandemic garden that we just had to keep the deer away from. 
And that made us think that we wanted to be on a um, bit of land and outside of the city. So we had, and I got my mind set on Gisborne actually, and I'd never been to Gisborne. Um, so it was, it was an odd uh, thing for me to find a house online that I thought I wanted to buy. And as uh, fortune would have it, we only had a couple of nights in Auckland. We picked up the car and then we went to Thames. And from Thames, we made our way uh, down the coast and as far as, as Gisborne. But the night before we drove to Gisborne, we saw this, this place here in Wainui and uh, went to Gisborne the next day and turned around and came back and decided that this is the property that we wanted to buy. Um, and it was for auction. It was 12 days till the auction. So we had to um, kind of just hope that we would get the property that we wanted. And it turned out that, you know, this was the, the original plan was maybe get something small and, and maybe later also have something in Australia. And we had this list of things that we wanted in our, in our house and our property, which included, you know, bush views and, and some water views and things. And when we saw this house, we just went, this does everything that, that we wanted and it's home. And it's, um, and so the Australia plan is now, We've got plenty of friends in Australia with nice houses that we can visit, so we, <laughs> we don't really need to own, we don't need to own a property there as well. So we're just perfectly happy with this location that we chose. Were you travelling with all of your belongings, or was there a a ship involved as well? Yeah, so all of our belongings. Well, we had a container coming with all of our furniture, so we we packed up the the, the houses, and um, fortunately, the lake house. The people who bought the lake house were happy for us to leave anything there we didn't want. So any of the um, the furniture pieces that we that we weren't in love with, we left with them, and uh, everything else we put into a forty foot container and had that sailing somewhere around the world. And we were hoping our timing was going to align with us getting a place and our furniture arriving. Ended up misaligning by about three weeks. We stayed in the house for about three weeks with um, four bean bags and a bed, and <laughs> um, then we then the furniture arrived. Yeah. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mehi aroha nui ki a koutou ko tahohau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope, wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more each day who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here, thank you. So I know for us all that these last almost two years have been very stressful, and it's so important to remember to be kind and to be careful with each other, to remember that we're all experiencing something unique whilst we share this collective adventure with all its trials and tribulations and challenges. I really hope for you today you're able to take a little bit of a step back and see your role in this bigger picture as we move towards quite a different way of doing being, seeing, feeling. You can see that your own time and your own energy are so precious and the more you care for yourself, the more you can care for and contribute towards the happiness and well-being of others. Often when we are caught in the maelstrom of busyness and deadlines and things we have to do we can forget this culture of care and kindness of taking things at a pace that works for us and finding time each day 
to do something that we love, that gives back to us, that uplifts and inspires our hearts, that helps us feel good, that helps us remember who we are and what we can do. And of course, here we are on the second day of Love Ember, which is very exciting. And so I will be doing many things to support my heart's home workplace, Orokunui Eco Sanctuary. Just finished a radio show all about it, talking about the Takahe babies prancing about, black, little black fluffy tennis balls, so gorgeous. And of course, also to look after all of the native birds of Aotearoa with my native bird feeders, Pika Pika. So I'll be doing lots of things for that today. And both of these aspects of my life are so important and really mean so much to me, give so much back to me, and do involve a lot of work and a lot of logistical thinking. This is, of course, so motivated and energised by that love that I feel for the living world and the natural world. So I really hope that for you, you're really finding the meaning and the passion in what you're doing at this time and that can sustain you. It is a time of change. It is a time where we're having to really prioritise how we want to use our time energy. Now we are in November. I'm really making sure that I'm back on the self-care train, the self-care dragon and the self-care wagon. So I'm, you know, really taking care of my physical health. I hope Oratinana return to bar base and taking this whole month to really recalibrate physically as well. So I hope that this can be an opportunity for us all during November to think more about how we can care for ourselves and each other on all levels, the physical and in terms of our consciousness and where we want it to go. I know that for all of us we understand the power of our words, the power of our language, the words that we choose to use, the words that we choose to share with each other. And I know particularly for me, I'm really focusing on this principle of right speech that I use my words to enshrine the world for myself and others and to draw out a sense of love and appreciation in the interactions that I have. At a time like this, it's so important that we see the hope that is always inherent in all situations that our minds are so creative and our hearts are so loving that we can always find the best way forward for us all. What a gift we have to do this. So thank you all for having me. Thank you to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Dean Smith. Finally, Dean, I get to ask about the gym. Moira oh, said you... Uh, uh, not growing gin, distilling gin. What led Still, to that? Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, so I love gin. So I'll start with start with <laughs> the basic. So I had a had an interesting um, passion for gin, and and as I travelled, and I was in the travel industry, and um, so I got fortunate opportunity to travel a lot, and found that all these countries were making really unique and interesting gins. So we have gins from Namibia and Botswana and um, Uruguay and um, Brazil and uh, well, a beautiful gin from Peru. So we were just kind of collecting these gins and realizing that that gin was quite an interesting um, drink. And then um, I don't recall how I found out that it is legal to distill um, 
alcohol, hard alcohol liquor in New Zealand and it isn't elsewhere, right? So you can't do what we're doing in Australia or the UK or Canada or the US. It's all um, very illegal things called moonshining. And uh, here, here in New Zealand, I don't know when or why or how that happened. And so we thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should make gin. And then Googled a little bit more and found um, a woman on Waiheke Island, um, Jill Mulvaney, and she's the gin whisperer to the country. So a lot of the gins that you find around New Zealand, she's worked with the with the distillers. And she runs little courses. And she also, of course, you exit through the gift store. And the gift store is full of these beautiful copper um hand beaten stills made in porto and imported from portugal and so we did the course and we bought, bought the still and by that stage we had the barn and we were like what are we going to use the barn for so that's how we got into the into it um simply by one having a passion for gin finding out that we could do it legally and then hooking up and finding that it's actually quite relatively easy and not terribly expensive to become a gin maker but we only make gin i'll just be very clear we make gin for our personal and social consumption and um, we don't sell it uh therefore um we don't have a license at the start of lockdown my wife's family decided to have a weekly meeting as i'm sure lots of other families did five o'clock on a saturday gin o'clock and it is still gin o'clock five o'clock on a saturday and woe yep. betide any of them that don't make it if they're doing something silly like playing squash or or still at golf at five o'clock on a on a Saturday, they, they miss gin o'clock and they they hear about it. Well, Sam, I kind of consider you a friend now, so you so I can share some of mine with you. Um, no no fee, of course. Um, the funny, interesting thing about Pennsylvania, back to the lockdown there, is Pennsylvania. All the liquor stores in Pennsylvania are state run. So we think about you know America, the land of the free but uh, if you want to buy liquor or wine you have to go to a state-run um, shop and i can tell you that the worst shops selling alcohol you'll find and of course when the government shut down there they shut down all the liquor store so if you lived in pennsylvania you couldn't get um you couldn't get wine and you couldn't get um liquor you could get beer but you couldn't get um the hard stuff so you have to then find and we we could cross the border we're quite close to the border with new york and or new jersey so we could do a little cross-border run and pick up some stuff if we wanted to but um the online um, wine.com ended up being a bit of a savior for us in that situation the the ups man the delivery guy he got to know us very well <laughs> through the door never making any contact but you know dropping off cases of wine on a regular basis and a bit of gin as well so you've had the experience of being locked down in more than one country because you were here, of course, in August when we locked down here. Did it feel kind of the same as, as the, your experience in the States? Uh, no. So this recent lockdown when we had, so, you know, we were, where we live, we were in level four, I think, for, for a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. I can't remember now. It's funny that, how your memory forgets these things. <laughs> um, no, I think everyone kind of had a much better sense of what was going what was going to happen and um, we, we you know we live out um, rurally anyway so for us um it, it didn't really change our lifestyle all that much it just meant that we didn't um couldn't see my dad couldn't see my family um for those few weeks um but it was um certainly more structured and and um better communicated than what we experienced in the york do you think that the I mean, the communication here from the government has been, as several people have described it 
to us as a as a bit of a masterclass in adaptive government and in values values led communication and in simple and clear communication. I don't know if you can say the politics aside. Why aren't places such as the states learning from that? Just that's those simple ideas of of communicating with people. Um, mainly because I think the politics can't be put aside in the US. Everything's political. Everything, and so so something such as public health becomes political, you know, and um, vaccines become political. Everything becomes political, and that unfortunately meant that you've got very hugely varying degrees of responses to the pandemic from state to state and you have um, hugely varying outcomes as a result so um you know some states i mean um, governor cuomo before he you know got into all the trouble that he got into was actually a reasonably good communicator in the state of new york uh, he may have taken some lessons from here but there, there were the certainly the daily uh, communications during the peak of the the pandemic. I think that the advantage that New Zealand always had was that ability at the time, though, to actually be able to eliminate. And that made all the difference to be able to allow everyone to go back to really essentially a normal life and that the pandemic basically went away for a, over a year um, and gave you know everyone the opportunity, I guess, um, at least now to have the opportunity to be vaccinated. As we move from elimination to suppression, it's always going to be a difficult transition. Is the things that we could learn from how places like the states that never tried elimination, but they presumably got quite good at communicating how to do suppression, are the things that we could learn from the states on, on that this part of the journey? Um, hmm, that's a tough question. I'm not sure there is much we can learn from there. I think the interesting thing is that is that you know we does everyone understand now that that this virus will be part of our lives. Um, um, it is um, it is going to be another illness that we can will come into contact with, and um, and I think that that's one of the issues that people still want to really believe that we can eliminate it altogether. Then that's going to be a problem because we do need to. Um, at some stage in the you know, relatively near future, open our country up. We need to meet, you know, travel. We need to see our whanau. We need them to come to us. We need to um, have that opportunity to to participate back. And that will mean that that will come with with risk. But with a endemic disease, not a pandemic disease, I think will be this. And I'm not sure that that messaging has quite, uh, and everyone wants to hear that just yet. Um, but um and you know the, the 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 term that got used a lot was we're just living with we just got to learn how to live with the virus and i've heard people say that in canada and i've heard people say that in the us and um and the countries that i trust to do that best are the countries with the highest vaccinates because that's how you can live with it because without the high vaccination rates it's not living with it it's dying with it that's right yeah and you know you can look at it you know today 1300 people died in the us from covid today you know, so it's not like it's it's not like it's gone away there just because everyone's carrying on that it's gone away. But unfortunately, those people who are dying from it generally are those parts of the country that have very low vaccination rates. You said before that you have worked in travel. Do you think we're going to get back to to travel like we knew it before? 
Uh, that's a really good question. If you asked me that probably six months ago, I would have said, look, in a year's time, everyone would have forgotten about it. We'll be, you know, traveling like like they like they always were. And I think there's some really interesting conversations. So so prior to the pandemic, the biggest conversation in the travel industry was over over tourism, right? It was about the negative impact that tourism and travel was creating for the environment, for cities, people's lifestyles, and so on. So the interesting question now is whether um, governments, I guess, take the opportunity to change um, how they manage the travel sector to allow it to be more sustainable. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't know that I think the government here is saying that, that that's what that's what they want to achieve here as well. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, humans are, are, are highly social. Humans love to explore. Humans are curious and inquisitive. They also like to show off. They like to brag. So, you know, travel achieves a lot of those things. So I don't think you're going to get to a stage where people don't want to travel. It may just change in some ways the way we travel. But I also have the view, though, in two years' time, um, there'll be medication, you know, and you're already hearing about it now. I just think it'll be just another disease that you could you could get and you do everything you can to protect yourself from getting it. And um, just like, you know, I guess in 1918, when people were talking about the flu, they wondered what would be happening, you know, in a few years after that. And um, now we hardly think about it. We have heard of it this time described as a, a time of a reset, a Rahui. If we if we've had that that reset, what are you hoping for that we we get back to? Are we going back to a business as usual? Are we going back to a something else? Yeah. So, are you talking about the travel industry specifically, or just generally? Just generally, because generally this whole experience for me has been you know I've come back to a country that I grew up for twenty one years and then did live in for thirty two years. So that was a, a major reset and i can tell you i came back to a far more interesting um far more um diverse uh far more culturally sensitive country to the one that i left um the food's better the coffee's way better you know so um so um so for me that re the reset for us and then to 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 move to the country and to then pursue some of our goals and passions that that um, we're fortunate enough to be able to do. So the the farm we've planted um, a thousand native trees already. We've got another twenty five hundred to go in over the next two years. So half of the property will be converted back to um, native bush, and um, we've also put in some truffle trees, so a bit of oak and a bit of hazelnut. So in six or seven years' time, you might be having some gentleman farmers truffle gin if you <laughs> if you're lucky, and um, and that's the reset for us. Has it made everyone kinder? I kind of kinder. I kind of thought um, it had. I certainly almost every New Zealander I'd met who'd lived through the first lockdown here were were um, took some seemed to be some very positive lessons from that experience. Um, I think people are getting getting a little less patient at the moment, um, and. I think we're just in that transitionary period. But for us, it's certainly been reset. It completely changed our life. It completely changed where we were going to live and, and coming home. And it was the, the best decision that we've, that we've made. Those positive lessons that we, we took from the, the first pandemic, what do you 
think of of all the changes that we've seen in the last year or so what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick um you know generally what you heard was a lot more family uh, contact a lot more people being you know forced to be close to their to their whanau and then enjoying it surprisingly <laughs> often um so so i i you know i definitely hope that will that will be the thing that will be the biggest difference and that will stick um and that that to me is i think what i hear um i'm you know i'm not sure about you know working from home and i, I you know i i worked in an, in an office environment um and loved it you know the social aspect of going into the to the office and and catching up with people who became your friends and so on i would i, I think that that you would lose something if that went away um for everyone um and understanding that everyone's um, has different needs and values as well so yeah to me it is that connectivity with your with your family and uh your friends and you certainly realized who mattered to you and um, we we were fortunate to be out in the country as i said and in pennsylvania but we could cook food and then we had friends who had COVID, and they they couldn't leave their apartments so we would get up early in the morning uh, about five o'clock and drive into the city about an hour and a half no traffic anywhere and be able to just leave food parcels on people's um people's stoops on their doorsteps we had friends who were chefs whose restaurants closed down but they just started cooking at home and delivering food delivery so you could buy for other people you know that level of um, also really supporting your friends who have businesses really supporting um local um i think is all stuff that's that's really important new zealand does that really super well i think um and um, this place where we live now you know there is just so much good local food the truffles you know so we only found out about the truffles because the olive oil guy ran out of olive oil and we asked him why don't you have any olive oil and he goes well i sold it to the truffle people and we're like what truffle people so you know you just find these fascinating businesses and business people and they're so happy to share and engage um which is what i love so hopefully more of that more of that let's squeeze in the second of your music choices let's have lady gaga rain on me why this Oh, well, so that was the song of last summer. So then summer being the northern summer. So that was the song that uh, while we were in lockdown was uh, was the um, song that we played a lot while we're on the lake um, on an, on our deck in the summertime to kind of have as our little, um, you know, release from the from the pandemic. So it was a fun song. I didn't ask for a free ride. I only asked you to show me a real good
galaxy I'm about to fly Rain on me, tsunami Head up to the sky I'll be your galaxy the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years um so professionally i i was very successful and that was great and i loved that and that gave me the opportunity to um to travel the world and see uh, see the world um my biggest success is i guess 30-year relationship um not many people get to say that i think <laughs> um so we're we're pretty pretty happy together, hence why we can still, you know, dance to a bit of Vogue a little bit 30 years later, 31 years later now. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Oh, so my superpower, if I had one, is, um, do they say it's the gift of the gap? It's certainly what, um, it's certainly what my teacher teachers used to complain about on my school reports so I feel like everything that the teachers told me would be you know being the class clown and all that sort of stuff got me got me plenty got me long long way from Rutherford High School in Seattle to North. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, yeah actually we I was having this conversation with Moeta the other day when we first met um, you know you, you, when when you're when you come out as gay in the 80s I don't think you have you're just an activist by the very nature of it. Um, I was actually at Otago University when the um, uh, law reform bill was was happening, and um, that was you know that was part of having to have a voice and use it. Um, and um, I have been did a couple of act up um, protests in San Francisco when I was living there in the in the eighties as well. So that was probably. The most active. I certainly remember, you know, I'm going way back now, was sitting down in the middle of Queen Street and saying we won't leave till the Texas leaves, which was the anti-nuclear campaign, you know, when there was an American ship in the harbour. So, um, yeah, so, but but my activism probably has been more about um, being vocally and, and openly um, gay. We pushed really hard for the um, marriage equality, um, even through our work, you know, making sure that people knew um, what, what, what that opportunity was there to, to push for that in each country. I um, got to sit down with Bill Clinton uh, for a little bit at one stage and ask him why he changed his mind on gay marriage. And he gave me the answer that he, which I loved. He said, you know what, Dean, I was just wrong. I was just dead wrong. And that was, that was, I thought he was going to give me some political answer. And he just said, no, I was wrong. So. Maybe we need some more people to admit that sort of thing about some other stuff. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, so, so, you know, I'm highly motivated to create um, a, a space for us here that is um, that incorporates Alfano, uh, the nature, the trees, the um, to just create a really nice life. And, and, and you know, the, the my biggest fear when I, and I've been asked this before, was that, you know, 
the clock is ticking and I'm just, you're just going to run out of time. So I'm motivated to use the time that we have to, um, to bring people together to, and to, to do the best you can to just make everything, make the plan a little bit better. And I'm not a huge, I mean, I'm not, I can't list my activism um, uh, as other people do. And I can't um, say that I've, I've changed the, the world, but what I can say is that we try and make it better as much as we can for the people around us. How did you get to meet Bill Clinton? I was a corporate event. So he was he was the guest speaker, but there was 3,000 people and I got the guy who sat down and interviewed him. And so um, we could ask any questions except the, you know, the one, the, the Monica Lewinsky questions were out of the, were not allowed, but I could ask any. And so that was 30 minutes sitting down, you know, opposite him. Um, and this was in, we were in Hawaii, there were 3,000 people in the room and you could hear a pin drop. Um, and he was really, and I was a little nervous, as I say, I've got the gift of the gab, and I usually don't get nervous about talking, but I was, you know, it's a pretty big gig to interview the president, and he, and he um, put his uh, hand on my shoulder and just said, don't worry, you'll be fine, and that was, so he, so he does have, uh, you know, and I know he's got a uh, storied background, but he has got a, an aura about him that's palpable. What challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Um, so, so, I, so I guess my current challenge is just making better and better gin. That's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, and I know that might not seem like much, but I'm just loving it. So the challenge has been to one, to try and get it to a sustainable level where it's affordable. So we've now moved to making our own white spirit. So I've got to get the white spirit right. I've got to make it as pure and, and tasteless and odorless and as possible. And then from there, turn it into really, really great flavored gins. And our gin that so far, my favorite has been one that I've called Delta Blue that was in the lock, the this most recent lockdown. Um, and I made it a blue gin. And, um, and it's also known as the leg spread. That was a famous line at the, at the um, was it Chris Hipkins, I think, who said that. So we've called it Delta Blue, the, the leg spreader. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? So, um, so my pieces of advice are to accept every invitation that you're ever offered. That's got me a long way in life. Um, and my uncle and my aunt um, told me that, they, especially, especially if you're going to live somewhere else, if you get invited to somewhere, just say yes and go. And that's how you meet people and that's how you make friends and that's how you move on in life. That's pretty cool. Thank you, Moira. Then um, you said before that uh, that you felt that you hadn't changed the world. Actually, you have, because the, especially for our rainbow community, that change would never have happened unless everybody's voice was loud and strong. And you were part of that. You were a role model through that time. You were you were an activist, openly advocating for change. So on behalf of my son and everyone else in our rainbow community in Aotearoa, thank you for that. Thank you so much for having the courage um, to stand up and, and be you. And we appreciate you a lot. And, um, and I can't wait till you come for dinner, which is gonna be really cool. And thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me because I always say yes. <laughs> thank you.
been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Jin Wigmore. with Wera Karatai in Fakatani and from Wainui we've been joined by Dean Smith that was Blowing Bubbles we hope you enjoyed the show This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.